that's the nice thing about being solo is it's my decision. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Dr. Tamara Walthall, who is TVMA's president-elect, has been a solo practitioner for more than 35 years. She opened La Vega Veterinary Clinic in Waco when she was just 28 years old. She didn't plan on being a solo veterinarian, but it just worked out that way. In this episode, she discusses the challenges she's faced over the course of her veterinary career, the benefits of working solo, and the lessons she's learned along the way. She also talks about how she met her husband and their travels around the world. Here she is. I guess I became a vet when I was 25. And um, I was from out of state. And uh, like a lot of girls, especially that age, I was very insecure. And I still am. Um, but it manifests differently. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I first started, I didn't intend to be solo. It just worked out that way. Um, I started out working um for a veterinarian for about three months and when that job ended the only thing open to me at that time was the emergency clinic and that was the most solo the most lonely I ever felt because I felt very much out of my depth yeah and I remember uh, one particular case where the dog came in with a laceration that went halfway through the windpipe and back in those days the uh, vet school did not offer all the support after hours that they have now. And I just felt very alone trying to figure out how to stitch together a windpipe. It was a big learning process, a big learning curve. And I did a lot of things that I felt very, very uncomfortable doing. So I would say the first third or maybe the very first part of my veterinary career, uh, gradually my husband and I would build a clinic. And we opened up that clinic in 1986. That was a little over, uh, around 35 years ago. Um, I've always been solo, but I wanted to get out of the emergency clinic. And and the nice thing about having my own clinic was developing a community. But I still, um, from time to time, felt like I was out of my depth. But I could refer things, you know, not being in an emergency situation. Um, Gradually, as I... I guess I've matured as a veterinarian. I could draw limits for myself as a solo practitioner. And uh, then over the years, I was able to expand my limits. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, probably about 10 years ago, I just made a decision that I wasn't going to do orthopedics over 40 pounds. Of course, I've broken that rule. Yeah. But but I've I've had enough instances to know that when they're over 40 pounds my hand strength is just not what it needs to be for some of these orthopedics but I have also learned how to invite people in to help me Mm -hmm. Um, both consultants and I have a really good relationship with my animal control officer who happens to be a great big guy so when I need extra manpower he's there he he loves to help me and um, I also know have a better understanding about how to ask my staff 
to help me. And I have a network of friends that I have developed, veterinary friends. Um, maybe I'm annoying, I don't know, but I, I will definitely call them up if I need to discuss a case. So based on what you just told me, you know, it can be kind of challenging as a solo practitioner, feeling a little bit alone. What have you done to cope with that? You said making a network of other veterinarians and having friends. What were like some of those lonely days like and what did you do? One case I never forgot when I was brand new, not brand new, but I was in my own clinic for the first a long time ago, I was doing a blood transfusion to a little teeny tiny Yorkie that probably weighed about two pounds. Mm-hmm. And I miscalculated how little blood it took to fill up a Yorkie. And I honestly killed that Yorkie oh. uh, by giving it too much blood. And I was so devastated, just yeah. uh, beyond belief. Uh, kicking myself and hating myself. I called a veterinarian that I knew of that had treated me always kindly and with respect. I didn't even know him that well at the time. And his name is Ray Emerson. Oh yeah. And and now we're really good friends. But back then, um, you know, he knew me from the emergency clinic where I had been, um, you know, working for all the members, and he had been one of the members. Um, He had a clinic on the other side of town. He didn't know me from Adam, but he just sat me down and told me to stop hitting myself and that these things happen, Tamara, and, you know, kind of helped me realize that I wasn't a bad guy here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just made me feel like I could live with my mistake. Yeah. And I never forgot the mistake, and I'm super careful about that right. uh, ever since then. But I also never forgot uh, his help when I needed it, his support when I needed it. Uh, it made a great deal of difference to me. I've also had a long. I, I have. I've had. I have friends for decades, mm-hmm. and one of those friends is Mike Joyner. Dr. Michael Joyner was the guest on the second episode of the podcast. He talked about selling his practice to a corporation. He and I both got on the uh, TVMA board of directors at the same time. We both decided that it was too hard being solo practitioners, like we both were, him at one end of the district and me at the other, to go visiting veterinarians. And so we started a series of meetings together just sort of invented ourselves and that became someone we could talk to about organized veterinary medicine. Um, now that he's retired, I've, I've called on him a couple times for, for medicine cases. Like he did, my own dog had a tumor on the spleen and I just did not feel comfortable operating on my own dog. It was too emotional for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's 15. Um, I brought him that day. I came to the office and uh, anyway, he, he did that surgery for me, and he's doing a few relief days for me. Anyway, we've had a long-standing friendship. Hmm. Those are the kind of people that, um, oh, there's a few other veterinarians in town that I've just simply called on, like Cooper and uh, Kristen Dodson, that are just really smart, kind people that are there when I need help, um, just to ask advice. 
And did Dr. Ray Emerson know the impact of his words, like the impact he had on you, how much he helped you? I am sure he did not. I am certain he had no idea that to this day I'm grateful to him for his uh, kindness. Yeah, just one person can really make a difference. Right, right. So find cases along the road. So this dog eats this rug and we pull it out and we're pulling it out and we're pulling it out and it just keeps on coming. And we finally get the whole thing out and the dog recovers. And a week later, the stupid dog does the same thing again. Oh, and this time the owner was just bound and determined. I mean, it's only one week after surgery, after gastronomy. Mm. And she said, I'm not doing that again. So she gave the dog peroxide and made it throw up the second rug. <laughs> <laughs> no more rugs after that. Uh, there was a lady who was talking to me about her duck one day and mm -hmm. it wasn't a day it was in the middle of the night um she said it had been uh, lacerated in the neck and so this i went on to this long discussion with her about how dangerous it is when the crop has been uh injured that that's like equivalent of being doing surgery to the abdomen and um, what kinds, of, you know, we'd have to have anesthetic, we'd have to do suture, um, you know, what all it would take and the possible costs. And finally, she just steps back and she says, well, I don't know whether to treat it or eat it. <laughs> and then um, uh, more recently at my own clinic, we had a really busy day one day and in walks an entourage. I mean, we're already pretty crowded, and my front room isn't that large. Yeah. And this entourage included a policeman who escorted this dog in, animal control, the owner, the owner's friend, and they're carrying this dog. And it turns out they were walking in the park, and the dog was running, looking at them, not looking where he was going, and he ran into a tree branch. Mm. So they're bringing this branch that's about four foot long in with a big dog with a branch sticking out of its chest. Oh, and then, you know, they called, they called the police. They didn't know what to do, how to move the dog. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's skewered. Ugh. And, um, that was an interesting case. Well, what happened after that? Oh, we operated on it and, uh, got the tree branch out. I have pictures of that. He did fine. Um, you know, with a tree branch, the grains all run one way, so you have to open up all the skin. And it didn't go, fortunately, it did not penetrate the thoracic cavity. It went beside the thoracic cavity. Okay. It didn't look like that when I first saw it, though. Mm -hmm. Over the years, I've done numerous, numerous interesting, you know, pulling stuff out of the stomach. So we had one dog that kept eating socks. And... Uh, you know, he's so far he's eaten two of them and he is getting them out of the drawer because the owner knows to put them up. The dog likes socks. Yeah. And uh, the way they he, smell. He a, I guess. Well, these were clean socks he took out of the drawer. Oh. And uh, the latest one was he took the dog with him to a funeral and the, they couldn't find the black sock, you know, for the funeral. Yeah. And I found the black sock. Oh. And, um, oh, oh, Shotzi, we did our exam and we did the puppy shots for this cute little, I think it was a Yorkshire Terrier. 
Um, and uh, she called me up all frantic um, about 20 minutes later and said, Shotzi's paralyzed. And I'm like, oh, bring him back in. I, I, you know, I can't imagine. I just did vaccinations. Yeah. And so she brings him back in and he looks perfect. And so then we set him on the ground and he would walk about three steps and then he would have to stop and uh, scratch his belly with his back leg. And um, I don't know why this only started happening after my visit or maybe she noticed it. All I had to do was cut the thatch of hair at his prepuce that was tickling his belly button and uh, Shotzi was cured. <laughs> <laughs> Just with that little fix. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. So I want to know a little bit more about you being a solo practitioner. What do you wish you knew then that you know now when you first started or like your first few years? Um, I think about the part that it's okay to fail. Developing the network, I think that can only happen though with time. Yeah. Uh, TVMA and TVMA. TVMA has been awesome because that's where you make the network. That's where you find the network. It mm-hmm. certainly has been the case for me. At first, I had a sense of them versus me when I would think about my colleagues, and I realized that we're all in the same boat together. Um, now that I'm, I guess, later in my career, mm-hmm. I love getting in interns and young vets because they make me think about things I haven't thought about in years. Um, you know, it's called in the trenches for for a reason because you you're one person, you don't have anything to bounce ideas off of. So I know there are some diagnoses I make too much and there's some that I don't make enough because I, I'm looking at it with my jaded eyes. And so it's great when I get another veterinarian in here, it's a real treat. Mm -hmm. When I was at the emergency clinic, I wanted nothing more than to go to work for another vet. I wanted to work at a clinic where I could get support and there was lots of vets there. And that just wasn't in the cards for me. There were no openings. And I had this chance to start my own business, which wasn't really exciting to me. I really wanted to perfect my medicine before I started opening a business. Yeah. But because I did that, I could set up my own rules. Mm. I've been, I'm a lot more close with a lot of my clients than somebody who works in a multi-doctor practice. Now they're part of my extended family um, and vice versa. And one bad habit I guess I have is, um, and I'm trying to break this habit, and that is forgiving prices when it becomes a very, very large bill, particularly when I see that the animal is just not going to make it. Um, And, you know, it just, maybe that's human nature. Maybe that's, uh, I'm I'm told that's very, very poor management practice, but it's also human. Yeah. I'm not opposed to trying to cut people slack when I realize we're not going to be successful. I'm sure they really appreciate that. It makes you come off like more personable and more, more human. Yeah. More and, and I, and I have the ability to, to be as flexible with my money as I choose to be. It's not somebody else's money. It's my money. Yeah, But if I'm ever going to, now I'm reaching an age where I'm probably within five years of having to retire mm-hmm. or wanting to retire. I, I don't really want to retire, but I keep wondering what I'm missing out on. 
uh, hmm. by going to work every day. Like, what do you think you would do? Well, I'd probably stay pretty busy. Um, my husband and I built a conservatory uh, with aquaponics. So using my biology degree and raising fish and plants, aquaponics is where you grow plants on fish manure. Oh. And so we've been, uh, that's kind of our, that's kind of our, um, our playground. Yeah. You know, we, and so I raise um, butterfly koi and white tilapia. You know, I can spend more time with the fish and the plants. In my, in my old age, I'll give up veterinary medicine and become a farmer. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not quite. <laughs> um, uh, and I have horses. And um, uh, I want to be able to ride. I always liked the fact that Lev Gale was able to ride right up until the end of his life. And I want to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on it. I suck as a rider, but I like riding. So I want to know a little bit more about uh, the hardest part about starting your veterinary practice. You know, you're basically an entrepreneur, you're a business owner. What was the most challenging part? Well, we started with zero clients. We built the building. Um, while we were building it, um, somebody took our money for the air conditioner and they Evidently, their truck broke down, and they used our money to fix their truck and didn't come up with an air conditioner. Oh. And my husband was working in the middle of Texas summer, and he had mostly completed the exterior, and we were really ready for that air conditioner. It was yeah. like 120 degrees while he was working. He was very yeah. skinny at that time. And um, <laughs> we finally had a friend loan us an air conditioner that, uh, that was retiring, um, till we could get on our feet and, and we, um, we basically ambushed the guy who owed us the money, the air conditioner. Uh, we had another friend, uh, uh, pretend he needed an air conditioner installed and we ambushed him. That's the way he finally confessed that he lost our money. Uh, and I think, I think he's the one who helped us, uh, install somebody else's air conditioner until he could, he, we never got our money from him. He just ripped um, us off. But, um, but that was, that was very challenging getting yeah. started. And then um, over the years, I would say lately, personnel is the most challenging part. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had times where I had one employee. And I've had times where I had two employees. And I've had times where the two employees couldn't stand each other. Mm. Boy, I got to know everything that was wrong in that clinic because each one would tell on the other person. Um, that was challenging. And so it's very nice right now. We have a very nice family that everybody likes each other and gets along. Yeah. But not so long ago, I had a technician that felt like I worked for her, that she, that she Um, owned the place and that I, I've never experienced that. And, um, she was a very hard worker, very smart. And yes, I suppose I should have just simply fired her. mm -hmm. Um, um, I finally suggested and found her work elsewhere. Uh, it was just a personality clash. Some of it I've since learned is because I'm a baby boomer and she's a millennial mm. and she knows in her heart that she knows everything. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, But somehow she'd gotten along the idea that I didn't know as much as she did. And uh, uh, I've never experienced that before. That was, that was a challenge. Yeah. But, but you helped her find a new job. Yeah, I simply said, look, I know they have an opening here, and I think it would be a really good idea if you if you apply there. She was very belligerent. She says, what, are you firing me? I'm like, no, I'm making a strong suggestion. 
Oh, it's, it's a nice way of encouraging someone to work somewhere else where. I've had times, plenty of times where I fired the client. And yeah. that's the nice thing about being solo is it's my decision. Um, you know, if they're going to be belligerent to me or my staff, not take what I say. Yeah. Um, life's too short. I'm doing this because I love doing this. I don't need people to make me stop loving it. Right. I'm curious about, have you experienced any challenges related to being a woman? Hmm. The very first few months that I opened up um, was the only time, um, like the only time a client asked my husband instead of myself to vaccinate his dog. And I was so dumbfounded. I said, you know, my husband could teach your dog history, but he couldn't vaccinate him. <laughs> you know, um, I, you know, I experienced a lot more chauvinism uh, in vet school from my fellow students. And that really wasn't chauvinism. That was competition for the large animal cases. There weren't that uh, many of them. Yeah. And if you didn't fight tooth and nail, you didn't get a large animal case. Yeah. So, so that client that was kind of shocking. Oh, they, they, they were fine. They were fine once they understood that I was the vet. He wasn't the vet. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer is no, not really. That's good. Uh, you know, it, that has not been, uh, I think that was a big factor in my mom's life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's been a big factor in my life. That's good. And then nowadays we're 80% women. Um, it's kind of like female chauvinism, I guess. <laughs> reversed yes Um, it is and so you talked about how you're you might retire in about five years possibly um what is your plan for that like would you sell the practice that is a black void okay you know I'm I'm told my clinic is probably it's not worthless it's just that it's not one of these million dollar clinics I would love to get an associate in. I just don't know uh, if I could find one that would want to work with me in my little, in my garden here. You know, mm-hmm. th- this is, this is not the ritzy side of town. This is what I call Rockweiler land. We're on the poor side of Waco. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I love my clients. They spend a much higher percentage of income on their patients on their on their animals than uh on the rooster side of town Hmm. but um but i have fewer high profile high dollar clients so what what do you think that says about your clientele they're people that i can relate to they are very respectful of my knowledge um they're really nice people to work with and they're people that i enjoy helping uh, and what does your, your husband, Roy, do for the practice? He uh, does the payroll. He uh, pays the taxes. He mows the lawn. Nice. And um, he used to do a lot of repairs, but I'd say this day and age, um, we're both getting a little bit older. I've got other people who can do the repairs better. And uh, how did you two meet? Like, what was his plan before working at the clinic? Oh my. Um, so I had a short job in Chicago. That was my very first job out of vet school. I had taken the Texas board. I was every intention of taking the New Mexico board where I was from. Went to undergrad there and high school there. 
And my mom underwent a second very violent divorce where the, the man attacked her and my young, youngest brother stepped in and it ended up that the divorce took longer than the marriage. And so she was living with all her belongings in her mother's apartment and in storage. And so as soon as I graduated, I took reciprocity between Texas and Illinois and um, found a practice up there. And she and I moved to an apartment together. And I felt like I got her my very first paycheck. I bought this new contraption that had just come out with state-of-the-art, a microwave oven. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, we lived on golf road in an apartment and um i was filling in for a practitioner who one was the young guy was buying out the old guy and i worked for the summer and then october 1st the young guy took over and he fired me october 3rd i mm. wasn't seeing it coming but i was doing 40 minute cat spades i was i was pretty upset so i still had my texas license mm -hmm. so i called the texas veterinary medical association office mm -hmm. i said do you know of anybody who's looking and they got me in touch with Dr. Range, who flew me down for the interview, only he didn't interview me. He put me right to work. I had to go back one week later and get all my things. Oh, wow. And they had already hired another vet, whom I found out was fired for embezzlement less than a week later, and I was so happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so Dr. Range, working for him was just a vast different world. I had started out there in Chicago with poodles and- Yeah. And in March, Texas, so it was a lot of large animal uh, that I was not good at. Uh, a lot of those dogs and cats that I was shining on. And I worked as best I could. Uh, when Dr. Range was working for uh, another outfit, and when his job ended, this time I could see the writing on the wall. And so I started working downtown uh, at the emergency clinic. In fact, the first vet I started working for down there was Ray Emerson who wanted somebody to work his shifts. Okay. Uh, so I was commuting 22 miles into Waco to work at the emergency clinic. And so they had hired me, uh, once I saw Dr. Range's job was ending, they hired me full time to work 40 hours a week. So I was working 40 hours a week at night and 40 hours a week in the daytime for Dr. Range. So oh when he God. finally called me up to tell me that his job was ended and he was gonna have to let me go, I said, oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> he had no <laughs> idea I was working elsewhere, but I was prepared yeah. uh, at that point. And I wasn't going to be left flat-footed. Right. Uh, this is a long story to tell you. Um, so I'm working downtown at night at the emergency clinic. And suddenly I have all this time on my hand. And um, uh, they have this thing in Texas called a caucus. And so I voted. And I went back, I was told to come back after I voted to the caucus, which I had never heard of before because they don't have that in New Mexico yeah. or Kansas where I went to vet school. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a heart delegate and um, turns out they needed more heart delegates for the state. So I got a call later on saying, would I be willing to go as a delegate to the uh, county convention? Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about it. But there was this young man there that seemed to know what was going on. In fact, he was the city manager of March, mm -hmm. and he didn't have anything to do because he was a Mondale delegate, and they, they weren't going anywhere. And um, um, because it, it was between Mondale and uh, Jesse Jackson, uh, the, uh, 
uh, little old black ladies from Mart who knew me because I had worked on their pony. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they, Mondale versus Jesse Jackson, they decided they could support a heart delegate. So she got all her friends to vote for me. And knowing absolutely zero about what was going on, I ended up being a state Democratic delegate. Oh, wow. And so it was just happen chance because uh, I was the compromise candidate. Uh, in so doing, I passed a county judge, a former state representative, and this young man who does politics for a living was so impressed at my political acumen. <laughs> and so uh, the police chief and, uh, and his wife and him took me out for pizza afterwards. Uh-huh. And then the police chief and his wife invited me over to try to fix this up. And so I thought, well, the only way I'm going to see him, I rode my bike into Waco and said, gee, I'm, I'm really tired. Could I, while, you, while, I'm, uh, while you're at Mart during the day can, and I have to work at night, can I sleep over at your apartment? So I was very bold. Yeah. And that's how we, that's how we started dating. <laughs> so, so you guys didn't go on a date. You like hung out with two other people with him and then you, you were like, can I, well, that was, that was it. That was the, that was the date. Yeah. That was that it. Was yeah. So, so he was really interested in politics. That's what. Yeah. I mean, okay. no, that he's a political scientist. That's what okay. he does. He was, um, at the time he was the city manager for March. Uh, he was a former, um, um, political uh, uh, presidential intern for Jimmy Carter. Oh, wow. Um, and um, it, at the time when I met him, he was working on a, um, he'd worked on the transition for the Mark White governor's uh, campaign uh, team. And, um, and so he had gotten a grant from Mark White um, to do a report on housing rehabilitation, which um, they still use today. Um, you know, strategic uh, tearing down of old houses, you know, that they, they grant small towns grant money to help in the impoverished side of town. You end up with a lot of abandoned houses and it just really runs down the place. And so he, he wrote the kind of the essay on that. So those are the kind of things he's done. And, um, when we were building the vet clinic, I actually spent a semester teaching at the local community college, and I decided it was way too much work. I liked veterinary medicine much more, but that gave him the idea, so he started teaching part-time at the local community college, and then he ended up doing that for 27 years. Uh-huh. Uh, he's now retired, but that's what he did, is he taught uh, Texas and American government at the local community college. Oh, okay. So he got to still do some of that while he was um, working at the practice with you. Well, um, when I, when you say working, you know, he and I own it together. Yes, legally, I'm the owner. Uh, but, you know, we're a husband and wife team. Yeah. And, um, you know, he does our books. And uh, he doesn't like working around me right from the, the get go. He had a phrase that he used. Uh, he called me professional breath. So he doesn't like being around me like when I'm, when I'm practicing because because I'd tell him what to do and where to go and he didn't like that. So yeah, we yeah. don't, we don't, you know, he has his upstairs office <laughs> and 
Yeah, it's good um, to know, like, boundaries for certain situations. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not very kind to him um, when when I'm working. I'm like, I'm I'm busy right now. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I just had two other questions about your practice. About how many clients do you serve? I have no idea. My clinic has become very busy. They've built a housing subdivision um, that's continuing to grow just down the street from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in business continuously for 35 years. Uh, the uh, Some folks opened up a new practice uh, about three years ago, and they've got about five beds um, down the road from me. If anything, it's made me busier. I don't know why, but it has. Hmm. And then um, how old were you when you opened your business, opened your practice? So I graduated when I was 25 in E3. And three years later, I opened my business in 86. So you were 28. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, nobody was hiring. (laughs) I (laughs) wanted to practice. Yeah, yeah. That's what you had to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about three years ago, Roy and I, um, decided to take a chance and I did something I'd never done. Um, I stopped practicing for 80 days while we went around the world on a trip. Oh, wow. And we planned that trip for about two years and he figured out everywhere to go. And, um, you know, we kind of patterned it after 80 days around the world, you know, the movie. Yeah. yeah. And, um, um, that's the longest in my adult life I've ever gone without practicing. I, I've never not practiced since I graduated. That one time I got fired, I, I went right to work in Mart, Texas, and only briefly stopped to get my things, yeah. you know, to do moving. Well, I was very scared. I was afraid I would forget how to do things, or my clients would forget me. They'd all go elsewhere. It was all waiting there for me when I got back. I had a fantastic office manager that orchestrated my relief vets. Um, we didn't have a relief vet every day, uh, but she would make sure that, you know, we got everything done while the relief vet was there. And they ended up, um, for the 80-day period, um, they netted about $1,000, you know, just between the relief help. I mean, I just wanted to break even. Yeah. Um, so that the business stayed there and, and my staff weren't suffering because I went on holiday. Right. And we adventured and explored and saw the world. And and the first time I did surgery was just like the last time I had done surgery. It didn't feel any different. And the nice thing was I learned that I could do it. And that was really nice to know, to know that I could take a break and come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where did you travel? Well, we used two repositioning cruises. We uh, traveled by Amtrak uh, to California, up the coast, um, the Oakland Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And then we took the cruise ship up to Alaska, um, which we'd been to Alaska several times. And then, but it, it went on through the Aleutians uh, all the way to Japan. And then we left the cruise ship and went across Japan, met my uncle in the middle of Japan where they have all the old temples and Mm -hmm. it was just amazing and we re-met our cruise ship in Nagasaki on the other Mm -hmm. side of Japan and then we took it all the way to um, Singapore and then Hong Kong. Wow. At Hong Kong we got off and we did a 10-day 
uh, China tour. And it was a arranged, you know, we called a travel agency and they arranged to have us have an interpreter at every town. Uh, we told them we liked trains, so as much as possible, we traveled by rail, which is a really good thing to do in China. Sometimes the pollution's so bad, you can't see the sky, and some of the flights were canceled. Uh, we um, and, and the rail in China is really neat. It's all electric, but all old, and they'll they'll have long trains that go very long electric trains that go through the coal mines under the mountains. Hmm. That was pretty interesting, and we could see lots of villages that way. And, uh, you know, saw all the big sites too, you know, saw the Yangtze River and the Li River and, and um, the, uh, Xi'an, the, uh, the, war, the famous warriors. And um, we went to the Panda, the Panda Center. Mm -hmm. And um, then from there, uh, we ended up back in Shanghai. And that was the only flight that we flew to Moscow. And only time in my life I've ever flown first class. Ooh. We, um, yeah, we, it was $5,000 for a ticket and we had enough points for one first class ticket and spent the 5,000 for the other one. And that was the shortest 10 hours of my life. You know, they <laughs> cater to your every whim. You can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You have a bed. It's, so oh, got, wow. So, so the unfortunate thing was we arrived and suddenly went from balmy Shanghai to icy, cold, snowy Moscow. And instead of a nice ramp, they have an icy stairway. I mean, they're so nice on the stairs. And suddenly after all this coddling, they kick you off the plane. Oh. So we had a tour guide there and we decided since it was incredibly cold, um, we took a tour of the subway system. And um, that was really neat. And that's kept us out of the cold. We went uh, through Europe. Um, what well, we actually went via Sweden, where I uh, met my foreign exchange sister from high school, and we oh. saw her hundred-year-old farmhouse. Wow! And uh, they had a record-breaking snow that year, so it was we didn't see much of Stockholm. It was too snowy, but um, we went with her by train. They have this really cool train that uh, the train itself goes off on a um, on a ferry boat. And uh, we took that to Copenhagen, and and then uh, oh, we saw the an enormous football field size of model railroads, das mm. miniature railroad, and and Germany. And so so then we um, uh, took the train underneath the Alps and ended up in Rome area, and from there we caught the other cruise ship home. Um, but it wasn't straight. We saw some amazing sites in the Mediterranean, uh, including uh, Madeira, Morocco, mm -hmm. um, Sicily. Uh, I, I can't go into it all. You get the idea. Yeah, yeah. And then on our way back, we we called the kids and we said, we, we want to come straight home, but why don't you all come join us at Disney World? And we went around Disney World to Epcot Center. And we showed them all the sites that we had seen in real life. That was kind of fun. That was really cool. And that was the end of the trip. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It was so fun talking to you. That was Dr. Walthall discussing her career as a solo practitioner in Waco, Texas. She learned the importance of having a network of veterinary colleagues how to move on from making a mistake, and the perks of working solo.
I loved hearing her story of how she met her husband, Roy, and their travels around the world. If you're enjoying this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews let Apple know that listeners like you are enjoying the podcast. We can't thank you enough. And thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TBMA. TBMA.